It could be. Well, should we start? Mm. I don't have that much. Let's start. Let's start. This interval on the Foolish Critic, we're doing Picnic at Hanging Rock. Welcome back, John. Hi, Kevin. It's good to be back. It is. Raphael? G'day, guys. It's good to be here. You know he's Australian. From Australia. Hey. Yeah. That was good. Oh, yeah. It's coming out naturally now. (laughs) He even says it now. All right. So this this time, it's a... um, this is a Raphael pick. Mm-hmm. Oh, we've gone yes. full-blown Australian. We're cutting yes. into emus and eating Uluru. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that means. But we're no. doing Picnic at Hanging Rock 1975. How do you classify yep. this? Why did you choose this movie, Raphael? What is this about? Take it away. All right. Okay. Okie doke. Um well, I, I chose the movie because I wanted to choose an Australian movie um, just to, you know, something a bit different. I'm Australian and all that. Um, now, I went against my better instincts because I, I, my temptation is to pick something uh, a bit trashier than Big Ticket Hanging Rock, something like uh, Road Games or Patrick or... Uh, they're not trashy. That, I don't... This doesn't have a trashy feel at all. It feels like the kind of thing no. that... no. Uh, that they would make uh kids watch at school kind of thing Is that yeah, fair? Uh, yeah i mean it's it was a growing up this was an important film in australian cinema history and it was talked about a lot and i heard it a lot um there's actually before i get into the the movie there's a, a great documentary called um not quite hollywood uh the untold story of ausploitation that is um, a good one, so it yeah. talks about it, it is isn't it and it goes through a lot of the, the sort of the exploitation films as they call them from the 70s and the 80s now picnic at hanging rock came along um sort of during that period when there are a lot of movies like these names mightn't mean anything but um the adventures of barry mckenzie alvin purple these were real sort of trashy i'm not i'm not being too Oh, well, I don't like them, I'll be honest. I don't like those movies. But um, they were sort of trashy. And Picnic and Hanging Rock came along, and here was a sort of fancy, artsy, serious movie, if you like. And, it, yeah, it made an impact. And I think it was one of the first, if not the first, maybe, or one of the first Australian movies to have an impact uh, internationally and be taken seriously and get critical uh, acclaim. Um so yeah, so I decided to choose this movie instead of one of the the trashier ones. Um, although I, I I could have chosen Next of Kin or maybe Dead End Drive In or Road Games or something like that. Maybe maybe some other time. Well, glad um, you chose this one because I I talked to a mm. couple Australian people this week and of course they like knew it. So I feel like it's a mm. cultural touch point that even like a mm. younger Australian person who wasn't even born yet, you know, knows exactly what you're talking about when you're saying Picnic at Hanging Rock because it. That's right. I feel like I'm plugged into the culture a little bit, so I ha- I like that benefit now. Excellent, excellent. Um, so yeah, so it, it was directed by Peter Weir, who um, is famous for movies like, well, apart from Picnic and Hanging Rock, for famous for movies like Truman Show, um, Dead Poets Society, um, Witness, Green Card. Um, he's made quite a few. All big, big movies, right? Big there. movies, yeah. Dead Poets Society. If I didn't say that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, he sort of I don't know, he, his style I don't know if he has a style really he, 
they're they're all quite disparate movies. Maybe if you analysed, you'd find something connecting them. I, I'm not sure. Um, he also made a movie called The Cars That Ate Paris, which is a sort of more of an exploitation kind of uh, trashier sort of. I keep using the word trashy. I don't really mean it. Um, I guess I'm uh, I'm using it as a descriptor, not a not a judgmental, not in a judgmental way. Um, anyway, so Picnic Hang Rock, yeah. So I wanted to choose something Australian, something you might like, Kevin. Um, and John, I, I was pretty sure John had already seen it. Uh, and I know he has, yeah. Um, uh, but okay, so to what what is it about? Um, so Picnic at Hanging Rock is set in 1900 and uh, it begins on Valentine's Day, which is what, February 14th, 1900. And it's set in a very sort of prestigious, I suppose, girls' college called Appleyard College, which is located somewhere in uh, regional Victoria. Uh, and on this where day... Wear, where they all sorry? Wear white, it's a college where they all wear kind of white lace in the morning while they're waking up in their wonderful pajama yeah. land. Yeah, it's very, it's very hoity-toity. It's very fancy. Everyone's wearing corsets and doilies and, and uh, you know... It's that sort of thing. Um, it's basically uh, England or Europe transposed to the Australian bush, you know, as as a lot of people wanted to do back then, which is, you know, we'll talk about in a moment, but is sort of part of the what the film's about, really. Um, so uh, Valentine's Day, 1900, and they're taking a school trip some of them are taking a school trip to a place called Hanging Rock, uh, and which is the, a, and that's the a, real name of the place, right? It's there's a really place called yeah, Hanging Rock. Yeah, I believe it's part of a, a larger area called Mount Macedon. I'm not sure on that. I, I haven't looked into the geography too much, but yeah, it's a real place. Um, and so they to to just say very quickly the plot of the the movie. So that the girls travel there, they have a picnic. Uh, at some point, their watches all stop. In fact, it's, they stop at midday. Um, four of the girls decide to go up the the rock, into the rock. Um, something weird sort of happens to them, I suppose. And three of the girls sort of just walk off into the rock and kind of disappear. And the last remaining girl sort of screams and runs away. Um, we then return to the college where they're all in a panic. What happened to these girls? We discover that actually one of the teachers also disappeared. Um, Mrs. Mrs. Mangle from uh, <laughs> Neighbours. I, I was hoping we'd get to talk about Mrs. Mangle. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, then, and then um, the rest of the movie, I guess, is just... Uh, trying to find them or, or one of the characters in the film, especially trying to find them, find out what happened to them. Um, and that's, that's essentially, that's essentially it. And the, the big thing, I suppose, big massive spoiler alert, which is, I guess, redundant for this, but we don't find out. Right. Um, and uh, this is, I guess, one of the problems people have with this movie and with the book actually upon which it was based a novel by uh, Joan Lindsay, I believe is her name, um, 
that there the ending is very uh, is quite ambiguous. I could see American um, audiences in particular disliking that aspect of it, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure, but but uh, yeah, I mean, it is an acquired taste. Um, definitely, the, I mean, the movie it's very um, a lot of it is just very atmospheric, um, almost painterly in a way. Like the scenes at the rock at the beginning, uh, some of them seem to be very consciously imitating art visual art in their in the the sort of tableau of the people sitting on their blankets around the rock and stuff um in fact joan there is a painting that joan Lindsay saw um which sort of part at least partly according to some stories partly uh influenced her idea of writing the novel um for me the movie like has a couple of themes that have sort of uh, are central to it. Um, one I mentioned before was this notion of of sort of Europeans plonked down in Australia in the Australian bush in their corsets and their lace and all their stuff um, uh, trying to live in this Australian uh, setting, which is very sort of incongruous. If I can make one point on that, it's very striking when you see yeah. like, the rich family like just saying, let's have a little picnic out in the woods here, and like how they brought their like living room furniture just to like yeah. enjoy a tea. Like the amount of effort to do that, and like showing the opulence yeah. in that way is really interesting. And the backdrop of it being like you know it's a looming weird rock. You're clearly out in the middle of nowhere, kind of feeling. So was, I thought that was yeah. like a funny juxtaposition of this very rich family going, let's have a tea out in the woods. Oh, bring our best, That's right. bring our best sitting chair yeah. and the good, the good teacups, right? Yeah. That, that couple, the colonel and his wife, I think they're referred to, really exemplifies that. And I guess that's part of the reason they're there. Uh, as well, of course, their nephew, the character Michael, who we haven't really talked about, who becomes an important character. Um, and he ends up hanging out with their driver, um, who's the actor John Jarrett, who was in Wolf Creek much later. Um, and that represents the class. You know, there's a class difference between the two of them, which is, you know, obviously being played out there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it, an, another theme, I think, for the movie is, is, the, is sort of related, but there's a lot of talk about there's a there's an important um there's a couple of important scenes one on the drive to the rock where mrs mcgraw the teacher i believe that's her name mcgraw mcgraw talks about the geology of the rock and she talks about its age and she says only a million years uh in the scheme of things and i think the movie does focus on that a lot the notion of of geologic time and and humans insignificance in relation to that um up on the rock one of the girls marion makes a comment about look at the ants down there uh, talking about their group being like ants and there's several scenes in the movie where peter weir focuses in on ants crawling over the food and stuff you know um so I think that insignificance of humans in the context of this of this sort of environment is another important theme. Yeah. And 
also, just lastly, I'll, I've been yabbering on, I'll, I'll, I'll just make one more point. Sort of, again, related to both of those, also the theme of, of these girls and sort of what happened to them on that rock, you know, what, what's going on with them and Miss McGraw as well. And I think it has something to do with um, a sort of, uh, what's the word, like a, a, their own nature, their own human uh, nature uh, awakening somewhat. Being in this very um, corseted society where, you know, there's checks and you, you keep yourself in check and you shut your mouth and you do whatever. Um, their their own actual sexuality, their own sort of um, truer, more human, or maybe even animal self, if I can say it that way, uh, being somewhat awakened in in this environment and on the rock for whatever reasons. I'm, I'm not sure why it happens that day. But I think Miranda embodies that in a way. And I think also Mrs. McGraw, oddly enough, perhaps you wouldn't, ex she's the least you'd expect, but but um, she seems to have an inkling of that as well. There's a moment when the French teacher makes a comment about Miranda being like a Botticelli angel. And the camera shows us Mrs. McGraw in the background on her face. And there's some sort of recognition coming from her like she she sort of has an inkling of what's going on she's closer to it i i'm not sure if i'm expressing this very well but it's like it's like there's some sort of human essence that they're getting a little bit closer to um especially having come from the strictures of the society in which they in which they live they the girls disrobe um irma's corset was never found um, there's something about them taking their clothes off and 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 sort of being somewhat freer, um, which you know I'm I'm assuming has something to do with sexuality as well, even though there's no you know overt sexual acts in the movie. But anyway, yeah. So I'll, I'll stop talking for a bit. Um, but yeah, that, I, I I think the movie just I think the movie explores those themes uh, and others in a very sort of atmospheric way and a thought-provoking way rather than a in a way that brings us to some sort of conclusion or or easy answer mm -hmm. at the end okay well that's great john did you have a hot take on this movie um <clears throat> raf said everything i already think about it really. <laughs> <Okay>. um <laughs> i think we can finish there um no, the I shortest episode. I don't, but I guess what I was, <laughs> what I could say is that, um, Kevin, you said that like you felt this was very much like a prestige film that you would get shown in school. Yeah, or yeah, something. yeah. This was a film I saw on TV in the nineties, late at night. Yeah, yeah. And when it starts off with her saying, "Oh, you must find someone else to love," and they're in this elite girls' school. If you've been, if your whole adolescence has been watching things like Lust for a Vampire right. and stuff like mm -hmm. that. It kind of had a slightly forbidden, right, right, right. voyeuristic feel to it. Sure. Uh, to me, as a teenager watching it, which is links to all that stuff you've just been talking about, right? But also, mm. at that time in the 80s and 90s, there was that thing that they, um, 
What is the quote from The Simpsons about like a short-lived infatuation with Australian culture? But it's the yeah. it's, it's neighbours, which Mrs. Mangold, yeah. and it's uh, Kylie Minogue, Crocodile Dundee, Crocodile Dundee, and stuff like that. So round about when I saw this on television, I also saw Walkabout, the Nicholas Rogue film. Mm, yeah, it's right. Kind of somewhat similar, and just has <clears> that <throat> atmosphere. I mean, I know Crocodile Dundee; he's wrestling with crocodiles or whatever at certain points, but. To a British person from that era, you kind of think of the suburbs or the city, and you didn't quite realise that heat and that the the intensity of being in the outback that those mm. two films really capture. So I remember just not knowing that until seeing Picnic at Hanging Rock and just being quite blown away by it. I I mm. do I love the film, but I really think it's that first bit up until they go missing that is incredibly yeah. strong. And after that, yeah. it's not quite as strong for me. Mm. Yeah, me too. The, the first like 30, 35 minutes, 40 minutes is beautiful and, and uh, thought provoking and keeps you sort of enraptured very magically, you know, the slow motion bits with Miranda and, uh, and, oh, and I wanted to say too, that the, the beautiful soundtrack Oh, the, yeah. You know, the gorgeous pan flute um, by Georgi Zamfir, um, quite famously, you know, it's quite famous. But it, I sometimes re-watch the, the start of this movie just to get that little monologue at the beginning and the, the, and the music kicking in. Mm. And it's sort of, it sends, you know, shivers down my spine a little bit. It's so beautiful. So um, very, yeah, very effective, that first. I agree with you completely, John. Uh, after that, it, it it I won't say it becomes a chore, but it but it, I my interest definitely I'm just sort of trying to keep up at that point. Okay, this happening. Okay, 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 okay. whatever. It, it does does wane a little bit, but um yeah, that opening is gorgeous, yeah, uh, and that beautiful music. Yeah, and that's that's Ecuadorian pan flutes or something like that. Romanian. Romanian. Um, yeah, Georgi Zamfir was Romanian. When I don't know, I'm a bit older, but I remember going to the second-hand record stores when I was a kid, and there were Georgi Zamfir records everywhere. Oh, he wow. was kind of really popular. You know, Georgi Zamfir does movie favorites. Georgi Zamfir, the romantic pan flute of Georgi Zamfir, that sort of thing. Um, so an American friend, but I can't remember who it was, said that there were always infomercials, you know, those things like subscribe now and you'll get 12 CDs of Gyorgy Zamfir's panpipe. Right. Maybe he's why we yeah. have that whole concept of panpipe pop covers and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think he was the original of that sort of thing. Um, the music at the beginning... It's interesting the soundtrack was never released of this movie, by the way. Um, uh, the, soundtrack, the, the soundtrack's by Bruce Smeaton, British, uh, sorry, an Australian composer. But that first theme, the title theme, I suppose, uh, was an improvisation by Zamfir based on uh, a Romanian song form called a doina, which is a type of Romanian uh, traditional folk um, song. Or something um but yeah it's it's absolutely beautiful um yeah okay cool well i i'll just say my my hot take on it is uh just that i really liked it 
even though I think it's not the kind of story that I would seek out, right? Um, you know, like you said, I think I like the first half more. I just, I'm just, to me, it felt like kind of like a man versus nature sort of thing in a way. And that's not, that's not what, uh, what grabs toward me, but it was an experience, right? I felt the experience of the film, like I felt like one, I think it was, I first heard Lynch talk about it, where like 50% of a film is the sound, right? And I really felt it with this. And I felt like that really sucked me in in a great way with the beginning music, with uh, the dissonance, with, uh, you know, the parrot sounds, just any little sound like pulled me in in an interesting way. Like it was like a master in storytelling with experience, I felt. So I felt like I was experiencing the film more than like paying attention to the story. Like it starts out, to me it starts out mm. interesting for having had no idea what it was about. Like I didn't know that this was a school. All I just see is these like uh, beautiful like 16 year old girls all wearing brilliant white lace brushing each hair and there's this thing going on with mirrors and you're like and there's something like the cinematographer is like way above and beyond uh, of what's yeah, going on like, I'm like whoa what is this the way that everything's shot and it just it just catches your eye in a way that I felt sucked in just by the cinematography and the sound so it was one of those movies where I felt like they took full advantage of the medium of how film is unique, mm. right? Um, it's not the kind of film I would write or want to create, but I loved it. I loved going through the experience of it and I was right there with it. So all the little things, all the little story pieces, I, I was interested in because it was part of an experience that I was mm. going through. Um, they, they pulled you into the weirdness and the horror in an interesting way. Um, mm. Like jumping, I thought it was a smart decision to suddenly jump to late at night. Like they didn't mm. show like all the panic and the long search or anything and all that mm. horror. But it, I thought it, I thought it was a great mm. a great way to keep it keep it moving there. Um, mm. It's funny you mentioned horror. I remember this movie um, sometimes being in the horror section oh, really? of the of the of the video store when you were a kid, or then sometimes in the thriller section. I think it probably settled in the art house section, as they used to call it. Um, but I think that's that was another sort of confusing aspect of this film for people. What is it exactly? What what type of film is it? I mean, if you're saying horror, as in as in we commonly conceive the genre, yeah. it's not really hitting that. No. It's, but it is a gothic story or a kind of sublime yeah. story. Yeah. And it's definitely uh, like reaching back into that sort of 19th century romanticism that's what inspired Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but but as a kid visiting the video store, when you reached for My Bloody Valentine or <laughs> The Prowler or, you know, with these lurid titles and there's Picnic and Hanging Rock, the... Uh, the fourteen-year-old kid might be in for a, a nasty disappointment when he gets yeah, home. How, you know how many killings has he got? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, well, four killings, I suppose, or or four or five killings, but mostly off-screen, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Um. um what do we think of some of the characters in this film, then? Because it, like you're oh, saying, yeah. it is this intense. Uh, sensory experience, but right, it right. is also a really well written film with interesting characters. Yeah, is yeah. Thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I liked I liked Sarah, you know, who had fallen behind and she wasn't allowed to go because her ward hadn't paid whatever. I kind of liked her kind of like rivalry with Apple Yard a lot. And I like the really blokey servant, that type guy. Oh, yeah. And he's, how he's talking, he's he's th- he throws in those great Australian phrases. Uh, like, oh, it's been uh, donkey. The John Jarrett. Donkey. The John Jarrett character? Or? The Birdie. The guy who plays Birdie. Albert. The, the, what, the oh, yeah. The yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Jarrett's character. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I, I, really, I really liked him. I thought he was fun. Did you, going back to Sarah and being left behind... Is this a deliberate Pied Piper of Hamelin illusion? Mm. The, that's what I, I love that story. I've always dreamed of doing my own thing with that story, actually. Mm. Maybe I'll get around to it one day. What, what, what do you mean, John? Well, what, she, I'm not... Because in, in that story, there's one person who's kind of like left behind. Uh, um, right. uh, usually it's like a boy, perhaps with a physical disability, who can't keep up with the other kids. So the Piper takes mm. everyone away never to be seen again, never to be seen by their parents. And there's just this one kind of forlorn child left behind. I thought maybe they were kind of playing around with that. Um, the film's mm. The Sweet Hereafter, absolutely crushing Canadian film, will kill you and rip your heart into shreds. That also kind of plays around with that trope as well, but m- more deliberately references it. Mm. Anyway, that's just where I thought they were going with that little detail. Yeah. So was she um, Alfred's sister? Yeah. Albert's yeah, sister, yeah, sorry. Albert's sister. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, the, that's, so the, that's he, the big kind of reveal at the end, I feel. Yeah. A bit of plot development. <laughs> and she clearly is murdered off by, she's clearly murdered off by Appleyard, right? Isn't, isn't that like why she's like yeah. wearing all black before she's told about the death? And I, she's like all in mourning clothes? Yeah. I mean, I guess I just, it's so, the whole experience is so surreal. Yeah, yeah. It? But yeah, I guess it's, I guess that is strongly implied, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So she, everyone hated Sarah almost, not really, but sort of. Appleyard seemed to not care for her. I guess she wasn't rich enough, you know, she wasn't from fancy family. But yeah. meanwhile, they fucking she love also, Miranda. She uh, also committed the crime of trying to write her own poetry instead of reciting what right. she'd been told. To that's write. right. That's right. Yeah. But Miranda, on the other hand, and they just fucking idolise, don't they? Like, yeah, it's it's cre- right from the get go. It's it's cre- it's kind of creepy, isn't it? It's How like much? the Twin Peaks. Yeah. It's like the Twin Peaks girl. For something to remind me of that. Yeah. The one who dies at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like that weird, like oh, that weird yeah. idolization of the pretty sixteen-year-old girl that everyone thinks is hot and you know is popular. And but if they're saying that about each other, that's one thing. But when the teachers are doing, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. So- yeah. <laughs> Cool. Like the French teacher's infatuated with her. Yeah. And, you know, um, it, yeah, it is a bit odd that they favour this girl over the other students in a, such an obvious way. But you mentioned you mentioned the cinematography at the beginning, Kevin. There's some shots of Miranda when she's at her dresser and stuff and they frame her in the mirror and stuff. Yeah. It's just beautifully done. Uh, it's it's so gorgeous at the beginning there. I had a, I had a kind of a, suspir- a Suspiria feel with the Madame there. Of the school, uh, that's yeah. that's kind of what I was what I was getting at at the right, beginning. Right, it, right, right. It, it didn't it didn't feel totally like a prestige film the first time I right, saw right, it, right, although right. it definitely there... has elements of that. But I guess mm. it's I guess it's grown in 
to that? Was it made yeah. the spirit of this is going to be the Australian film that people talk about, or was it just made yeah. critical? Yeah, I know. I know. It's funny. We I mentioned all the Ozploitation films before, but I also had a look at at um, some of the other new wave films from that era that weren't Alvin Purple and Dead in Dead. Um, Dead End Driving. So there were things like Walkabout that you mentioned, which was a Nicholas Rogue film and, and a quite a, you know, esoteric film, I suppose. And there were things Wake in Fright, um, oh, Storm yeah. Boy, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, My Brilliant yeah. Career, Breaker Morant, Gallipoli, The Man from Snowy River. Other, other films as well that were not uh, just uh, trashy, you know, uh, Razorback and stuff like that. Um, I think a lot was made, like you say, of the prestige of this film at the time. And I think perhaps, I, I don't know if Australians or Australia or the in, so-called intelligentsia in Australia had a chip on their shoulder about this sort of thing. And perhaps they desperately wanted Picnic to, at Hanging Rock to be something um, that wasn't Barry McKenzie and Dame Edna Reveridge and neighbours and and that sort of thing. I know neighbours wasn't around quite then, but um, I don't know. And and like I said, it, it used to be in the horror section sometimes at the at the DVD store, DVD store before it settled into its art house um, uh, label a bit later on. But yeah, I think it was an interesting time. That exploitation documentary, which doesn't focus on picnic and hanging rock, it focuses on. Uh, slightly different films uh, uh, is a really interesting look at the film industry at that time. Um, uh, There's a lot of money being thrown around. Um, people, it, it, anyone could make a movie, and they get some funding for it. Um, and I think Peter Weir with Picnic and Hanging Rock was was one of those directors who who um, born into that. His other films are all terrible, though, aren't they? <laughs> I terrible? I, well, maybe yeah. terrible's a bit harsh, but I sometimes kind of conflate yeah. him with Milos Forman, you know, who ended uh, up doing stuff like Amadeus and, like... Yeah, right. And other things. Mm. What's that other thing with Jim Carrey where he's that guy who wrestles people? Oh, yeah, you know, he just, messed that up. I, yeah, what a great story that they screwed up. I feel Andy Kaufman. The yeah, story, Man, Man in the Man, Moon. Man, right? Man, the Man. And I love... I thought they would do better with that, and I just... I just felt like that was poor storytelling, something about the way it was shot. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. yeah, one of these people who had a really interesting start to their career and never quite mm. lived up to it. Maybe I was a bit harsh in there, all terrible, but, you know. I mm. like the Truman never, Show. I, never I like Truman Show. And Dead but, Poets Society like is okay for its time and feels terribly <laughs> dated now. Oh, it's so syrupy. It's just pure syrup. <laughs> I can't stand and it. And Green Card um, is really... Green Card. Green, green Card is yeah. awful. <laughs> it's an awful card. Yeah. Green Card is awful. Yeah. It's got, like, one line, maybe. It's memorable. Yeah. Witness. He did Witness, too. And Witness was... I don't know if you've seen that, but it, it was that. an old um, yeah. thriller. Is it Harrison Ford investigating um, a murder in the Amish community? That's right. I have that's seen right. That. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really know. Not, I don't think it's amazing or anything, but mm. uh, you know, one of those um, one of those nineties thrillers that's quite good. Yeah, good fun. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and I love when they attack Irma. 
Oh yeah? Yeah, when they all just go after mm. Irma and then you like see Sarah's all like chained up to the wall by the piano teacher and you're like, what the hell was that? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Did we want to do um, a favorite quote of the movie? Yeah, well, I love the dialogue when they're in the carriage on the way to Picnic Hanging Rock, which you highlighted that scene already, Raph. So it wasn't so much one line, just that whole mm. exchange when Mrs. Mangle says, so as the mountain comes to Mohammed, Hanging Rock yeah. comes to Mr. Hussey. But also that discussion about how old it is and she's patronising him because he doesn't have a grasp of geological time. And then... Right. Oh, it's been waiting here a million years just for us. Mm. It's so ominous. Irma says that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so ominous yeah. when you've seen it once. Like that gives me yeah. a bit of a chill. What about you guys? Um Well, that's one of the ones I picked as well. Um I I did like it. I mean, there was something about the line when she said, and you, I think Kevin, you mentioned this before, you must learn to love someone apart from me, Sarah. I won't be here much longer. Mm-hmm. Was sort of another little ominous sort of thing to say um although it could be connected to her returning to her farm you know because she mentions the farm in queensland i think um but yeah the mrs mangle speech in the in the cabin it's sorry in the carriage but also later when i think it's marion at the top of the hill looks down and says what whatever can those people be doing down there like a lot of ants a surprising number of human beings are without purpose though it is probable they're performing some function unknown to themselves, um, she says. I thought that was an interesting little um, speech as well. Um, my my favourite line of the of the movie was the doctor going around and, and assuring everybody, mm. don't worry, she wasn't <laughs> raped. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. he kept she... on saying, she's intact. Yeah. That... And everyone goes, ah, yes, the doctor knows if she's been raped or not. And he keeps, he keeps don't worry, he's, he, gets, he gets a little thrill of just saying it. He's like saying to people in the hallway, she was intact, yeah. don't worry, she's, she's That's intact. That's funny. But he, he says, and he says, she's quite intact, actually, I, I think is his exact way of putting it. He says it to the police officer in yeah. in the room, which you, you sort of understand because, the, you know, it's part of the police thing. But like you say, he walks past downstairs and just mentions it to like the, the cleaning lady or something. She was quite intact. Yeah. It's like it, something that had been hanging on their minds or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it links They to needed this. reassurance. To this fact that there was something sexually charged about this yeah. whole inexplicable event, whatever it was. Yeah. What about the double bill then, if you're going to double bill this. Before else? we do the double bill, that we need to do a quick commercial break. No, wait, <laughs> someone else. I forgot. I'll get back to you on that. All right. So where were we? We just finished talking about the quote. I was going to ask what you would double bill this film with. Oh, good question. Mm. I have no idea. Well, can, I, I, can I share mine? Uh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, it's Aguirre, The Wrath of God by oh, Werner Herzog. Uh, nice, yeah. Um, because, again, like you you pointed out, Raf, the sort of... Um, all that stuff about the English refinement and all that stuff, it's colonialism, basically, isn't it? And <clears throat> that's another film where the coloniser turns up and tries to impose his vision... Uh, but there's a nature that is vast and kind of sends that person, they can't handle it, you know? 
So it's another mm. film on that theme. But also that all this soundtrack with um with the pan pipes and with that other composer who you mentioned is almost like a pop or vu soundtrack, isn't it? It has that same quite new age feel with the pan pipes, but it's also got some bite to it, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like you're in a wellness mm. bar getting your feet massaged or something. It's got something <laughs> sinister no. going on to it as well. Uh, yeah. So for me, it's got to be that. I mean, uh, I think that's high praise for the movie. I mean, that's one of my favorite movies. Mm. Rear Wrath of God. I love that movie. Um, that that strikes core with me with the man vs. nature too. But I, I, I like A Great Wrath of God for its man versus man inside of that and man versus his dumb ego and all that stuff too. Where I feel like in uh, Hanging Rock, there really is this weird nature force, you know? Yeah. Any thoughts? I guess Walkabout as well, which we mentioned before. Yeah, I could see that those two working really, really well together. Uh, oh, Walkabout's just incredible. Um, mm. Yeah, those two will work really well together, I think. Any other thoughts from you, Kevin? Well, you know, what? what's kind of weird about this movie is, like, what I want to... I don't have a double bill, but, like, it does remind me of, like, this news story that happened in St. Louis, or outside of St. Louis, at this place that I went and camped a few times, um, where just uh, a guy who was, like, a Boy Scout, like, leader or whatever... Like he went on a hike with his two ki- two of his kids when they went camping one day, and it was one of these weird days where it was like sixty degrees when they went out for their hike, and then it like dropped down to twenty. Well, so this is uh, uh-huh. so this is below freezing, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm doing I'm doing Fahrenheit. I'm talking to two Celsius people, but it's dropped well below freezing from being like a nice day, right? And it's raining, uh-huh. and like they end up dying. Oh, no. th- that that night and it was just like mm. one of those news stories that got stuck in my head that i couldn't stop thinking about like how weird like because the guy wasn't like this guy wasn't like a dumb guy mm-hmm. it's just like this like fluky thing happened where he's with his kids they went on a walk they got lost like the temperature dropped like a ridiculous amount like in a way that it never normally would like you know like a record-breaking amount of weather drop and it just kind of got stuck in my head and like i know that area where they went camping and it just reminded me of just the threat the threat that's out there that you you underestimate sometimes that can take you and you know uh yeah like it's one of those ones that like kind of spoke to me because i went camping where they had been camping like multiple times and i also had remembered that weird day where the temperature dropped that much so it was just kind of one of those fluky stories and that this uh, movie like triggered that that memory mm. in there and mm. that real life memory to me but yeah i think australians sort of maybe quite famously really we we cling to the coast of our country you know we we we're sort of walkabout is about this same thing too isn't it Mm-hmm. Where where we we've we we're trying to control the environment desperately where we can, so that we don't have to really be a part of it. Except you know we take those trip people these days. It's very common to get a caravan or a camper van and drive around Australia, whatever, in your air conditioned you know mm-hmm. little home with your gallons of water and all this sort of stuff. But but actually, you know, I think white Australia is kind of horrified by the outback, or at least at least that's one of the the cliches. Uh, but I, I I see I see truth in it. I think. Mm. Um, 
Yeah. I thought it was kind of funny. But it is scary. Yeah, I thought Mm. it was kind of funny the way they have, like, these ominous signs of nature. Like, we talked about the ants. There was also the cicadas. Mm. And then there was, like, Mm -hmm. a few interesting, weird choices that, like, for me as an American, like, I'm just delighted to see parrots. But they had this, like, flock of parrots. Mm -hmm. And it felt like you were supposed to be scared of the parrots. And I felt this dissonance. And then there was this koala. They, like, zoomed in on a koala. Mm. Like, oh, a cute koala. Mm. But it was supposed to be, like, yeah, this is pretty messed up. What's going on right now? We have now a koala's mm, here. Mm. Booyah. Right. Yeah. There's a flat earther. There's a flat earther who thinks all koalas are CGI. Okay. So maybe, maybe that's what's scary about them. It's, it's a planted, planted robot. robot. Uh, a monitoring, monitoring surveillance, surveillance device. device. <laughs> something, something. Wow, wow. They did a good they job in 1975. Uh, <laughs> there's another good Australian movie called Long Weekend about a couple who go camping um, by the shore somewhere, and it's and it's the same sort of theme. Uh, nat- well, nature attacks them really, um, and all the creatures start to attack them and, and and stuff, which again plays into this idea of the scariness of of nature and and. Australians trying to to survive in it, you know. Hmm. Well, that was a good pick, Raph. I yeah. really, I really enjoyed it, especially the cinematographer. Oh, I'm glad. The, who was the cinematographer? Did he did? Oh, did he's did famous. Write him Some, down. He did a good job. Russell Boyd, is that right? Boyd. Russell yeah, that's Boyd. right. He, he's won a, an Academy Award for something, but um, good job. And there was was there Bach Mozart. Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, God Save the Queen, all in this. I wrote that down. Being, being there was Bach the and there was Beethoven, I remember. They used the, um, the slow movement from the Fifth Piano Concerto, effectively, in it. It's quite lovely and poignant. And some Bach, yeah. Okay. The music all through it was lovely. But that ominous music from Bruce Smeaton um, was also very effective. Um, uh, when they're in the rock and the the camera's just showing us the rock and you've got this sort of ominous uh, mood music going on. Yeah, it could be, it could be cheesy, but it seems to work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so John, did you say there was any mail from last time? Um, there was an anonymous request that I do my Elaine May impression. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, can sure. I do that for our one fan? <laughs> I've been wanting to do it for such a long time. You, the only request to do what exactly? To do my Elaine May impression again. Elaine May. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You sounds know, good. Elaine May when she's sure, just, sure. When she's a telephone up there. Hey, up there. Elaine May speaking. I just. <laughs> Got a request <laughs> okay. from our one. An anonymous an request. Anonymous really? Request, yeah. Right. Submitted him on paper. Well, ha- have we heard from De Bruder? Uh, no, Again? we haven't. I'd love to. Um, I would love to hear more from him, though, if he's listening. Yeah, De Bruder, you can email us every week and uh, we'll get back to you. So, you know, we should mention it has been a little bit of time since our last episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well,. So something, uh, I, I, yeah, my fault, mostly, yeah, I suppose. Fault, mostly. I, I've moved, uh, mostly, <laughs> entirely. I've, I've moved continents um, and, uh, yeah, was, was homeless for a bit. Um, Were you nah, walking not around really. on Hanging Rock with your corset on? <laughs> Is what yeah. Doing? Oh, yeah. Loving it. Loving it. Well, can I pick I've, the film for All exposed time? to the fresh air. <laughs> 
just let letting the parrots have at it. <laughs> and those those koalas are saucy little buggers. Um, well, can I pick my fly them with some you? For next time, then. Oh yeah, John, it's your pick next week. Yeah. Next interval. Well, I thought we should look at something new, right? And this is a film from last year. It's called Funny Pages, okay. and it's by a first-time feature director called Owen Klein. And I think you'll enjoy it. It's a dark comedy about a comic book illustrator. Is it also from 1975? No, it's from last year. I already, oh, wow. I said that. Okay, I? I don't pay attention when we talk. <laughs> Clearly not. You said it like five words earlier. <laughs> um, uh, uh, what was it called again? I didn't pay attention to that. Uh, funny Pages. What was it called again? Funny, funny pages. pages. Funny Pages. Funny Pages. Yeah. It's an Australian film. Excellent. No. <laughs> Does it have koalas in it? Um, I don't recall. They're not that significant. Does it have the same do. theme of fuck these white people in nature? Uh, not exactly, yeah. no. Who, who plays the pan flute in this one? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to get back to you on that. Okay. Can, can I tell everyone to tune Are in we next stopping? time? Sure, you can tell everyone to tune uh, in next time. Uh, Go ahead. Tell everyone to tune in next time, John. <laughs> Uh, we'll come back next time for more exciting conversation with the Clueless Critic. I've been John Riley. I'm Kevin Nikolai. And I've been Raph Marcinet. Well, do you want to stay on the Zoom for a little bit and just have a beer? Sure, yeah. Sure thing. Let's, uh, I'm happy to see you guys. Yeah, it's good to see you too. I'm gonna, we're, we're in the hot room. We're going to move over to the air-conditioned room. Outro music was provided by Homeless Sky, and intro music was provided by me, Beatrice Nikolai.